Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast where women get really honest about surviving and thriving in what often feels like a man's world. My guests are wonder women from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real problem. I know this only too well as a female Southeast Asian mechanical engineer. I was kind of a minority within a minority. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, an engineer turned broadcaster. Throughout my career, I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation. And through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. Talking to these exceptional ladies has often left me feeling empowered, hopeful and excited about life. I believe silence would enrich you too. Every week, a woman in STEM shares her unique experiences with absolutely no pressure in having to promote her accomplishments or guard her impressive reputation because I've come to realise that everyone is just way more open and relaxed when they're anonymous. So I deliberately disguise my guest voices so that we're just connecting as human beings rather than human doings. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of artificial intelligence. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do something that's quite unusual. How did you feel when you heard that it was anonymous? Uh, It was interesting and different. And I'm more used to having to do promotion activities where it is important to put your name on it. But it does allow yeah. a greater openness, I think. Mm. I, I think as a woman in artificial intelligence, you must get a lot of people wanting you to be the sort of spokesperson for women in that particular field. Is that the case? Well, I'm, I'm definitely the poster girl. I get wheeled yeah. out by colleagues, by institutions to present things. And because I tend not to shy away from these things and with practice have learned to do them fairly well then I get asked to do them again and again so a lot of the a lot of the talks I do are about explaining artificial intelligence to a general audience and that's something that you rarely find done well yeah have you been in this business a long time I have been working in technology for about 30 years. Oh, wow, 30 years. So I guess, was artificial intelligence around 30 years ago? No. So I started out in computer science more generally. I spent a long time working in image processing for the broadcast industry so image analysis, compression, video compression, analysis of motion within video, um, lots of technologies like that. So I generally say that I will work on anything that's got pixels in it. <laughs> so how did you make that jump into AI? I did a, a PhD as a mature student. So I had been in work post Uh, my first degree for about 10 years, a little bit more, I had reached a point where I felt I wasn't progressing in my own professional development. And because I worked for a family 
firm, I couldn't very easily go off and work for a competitor in order to progress and develop my career. Mm. So I found that that an academic opportunity was was a a way out and a a way to grow myself. Mm. So I did a a doctorate in computer vision. Gosh. And is that closely related to AI then? Yeah, so computer vision is one application field for AI. There are other things that you can do with AI, but most computer vision will involve machine learning in some form or another. Yeah, because I must say, as a subject, artificial intelligence seems really broad and encompasses so many things. Indeed. I was quite reluctant to, to put it into my job title because it is such a, a woolly notion and anyone who actually works in it and understands the technicalities um, kind of rejects it because it's too nebulous and people much prefer to talk about machine learning. Mm. But when you are addressing a general audience, they will just not know what you're talking about. Yeah, I find machine learning fascinating. And to me, that term is so much more self-explanatory because you're basically expecting machines to learn from previous data points, uh, whereas artificial intelligence doesn't really mean anything. Well, it, it's, it's, much, you know, it's, it's much more ill-defined where it begins and ends. But I was, I was actually preparing a, a talk that included both of these just now. And the only difference in the dictionary definitions of learning and intelligence is that the broadest definition of intelligence is capacity to learn. Right. So so mm-hmm. they are very related. Um, yeah. Machine learning tends to be uh, more technically well-specified and measured and measurable. So why did you move into this area? Because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't look like an easy subject. Oh, I wasn't looking for an easy subject, um, but I was (laughs) looking for an interesting one that Mm. would exercise my intellectual capacities, my own intelligence, if you like. And I also wanted to do something with a useful social impact. I actually rebelled against working in the broadcast industry, where the ultimate purpose of my day at work would be so that more people sat on the sofa and vegetated in front of the telly. Sorry to be saying this to a broadcaster. Um, and <laughs> I, really, and I, I, really, I found that... <laughs> I, I, I really hope that the thing, the f- content that I create uh, doesn't encourage people to do that. But yeah, I, some, some content on television does do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, has, yes has, has a more valuable impact than that, yes. Um, so I, I did my doctorate in medical image analysis. So this was looking at uh, microscopy images of tissue samples and trying to determine presence of diseases in a more automated and reliable way. And right. to me, that felt like 
important, useful work to be doing. Yeah, it's so interesting that that is a branch of AI, because when I think of AI, I think of robots and robots just becoming more and more human. But that's just such an oh, ignorant no. way of seeing AI. It is a very broad field and the applications are plethora. So I guess the reason why your line of work is artificial intelligence is because it's using computers to basically uh, create a very sophisticated memory bank that can then recognise future images based on past images. Yeah, so it's more than just a memory bank. So the data set that you learn from is a memory bank of examples that you do know the right answers for. But the learning part is to be able to generalize the the rules and the clues that are in the data so that when you are presented with a new image that you've not seen before, you're still able to provide an intelligent answer of whether it be a disease or a character or a a type of object that you're looking for. Mm. So you're clearly very capable in this field. Um, It doesn't sound like you take much nonsense from anyone. What's it been like being a woman (laughs) in AI? Um, So a woman in technology in general has been, uh, from my perspective, um, I found it right, a little bit lonely. I don't have quite as much uh, friend, close friends that are also colleague as colleagues as perhaps my male colleagues would. Um, But I think that's generally because of my background. I'm not um, English or American. I actually was born and raised in Soviet Russia, where the attitudes and the expectations of what women can do as their occupation are rather different. And I think it is that cultural background that has given me the assumption that it is absolutely fine for a woman to be working in Mm. technology. And it wasn't until I got to this country that I was surprised to see that in other places, people see it very differently. Yeah. Why are women allowed to be so strong in Russia? I've heard that before. I think, I think they've had to be, um, historically. The Second World War in particular took such a, a heavy toll on mm. the population as a whole and on the men going off to yeah. fight. And it's, it's, it's similar trends in other European countries of women becoming much more involved in technology during the war. Mm. And then being edged out of it again while, you know, when the men came back um, and, and wanted their jobs back. I think in the Soviet Union, the attitudes were different because from the very beginning, there was an element of gender equality as part of the, the original 
revolutionary agenda, if you like, of equality in general. Mm. And so there are a lot of structures built into the system that promoted gender equality and um, childcare, very easily available institutional childcare is one of them. Wow. So that enables women to go off to work. I mean, it has some downsides. I was put into a kindergarten at the age of two where I spent from Monday morning to Friday night. Gosh, okay. So you have... That's, that's not good for your relationship with your parents, but it does enable them to work whatever shifts they need to. Uh, so my, my mother was a programmer before she um, oh, had wow. children. Okay. Um, yeah. My, yeah, my, my father is also in the broadcast industry and I have engineers in my pedigree going, going back mm-hmm. generations. Yeah. How influential do you think that has been when you compare yourself to other women in your field? I, I think it does, it does give me the confidence to, to believe that, that it is absolutely fine for me to be here. I don't suffer from the imposter syndrome on that particular account quite as much as some other women do. Yeah. I mean, I must say I feel happy for you that you've never mm. actually sort of been downtrodden by that imposter syndrome effect um i have i have had bullies try to um you know down down tread me if that's the mm. word but that and and some of it was misogynist but i would never accept it as mm. something that that is to be expected mm. and i've had i've come across absolutely wonderful male mentors and supporters over the years that I am immensely grateful for. Yeah, I mean, I must say that I've been doing this podcast quite a while now, and I have had various guests come on and say that really it's about attitude because, you know, great male supportive role models exist. There's also the opposite of that and everything in between those two extremes. And so time and time again, from speaking to my guests, I realized that actually it's all about your attitude towards the way people treat you that counts and not actually the way you're being treated because it's all up to interpretation. It's all up to how you receive. What's been your experience of that, if any, on how you've been received in the world as a woman in STEM? Um, I don't know whether that it is to do with my personal confidence and starting point. Um, I have generally um, been received well and respected in the vast majority Mm. of places where I have worked. I have found that when my children were younger and I chose to work part-time and I was grateful for the opportunity to work part-time and had the time to spend with my children 
while maintaining intellectual stimulation and sort of professional connection for myself. But I did find that that uh, pretty much cut off all possibilities of promotion professionally. And it wasn't until I was able to work full time again that I was able to really build a career and do things like PhDs and and really progress. When did you go back full time into Uh, work after your children? So full time, uh, it wasn't until I started doing the PhD when the children were six and nine. Yeah. Was that a difficult decision to go full-time when your kids were that big? Um, it, it was much more difficult to leave a settled professional job and go off on this adventure of academic study again, which was a, a massive unknown, really. Yeah. I don't know um, how you did it. And because the, the university was extremely flexible, I was able to, again, work from home for most of the week. I only needed to go into campus about once or twice a week at most. And so I was uh, able to fit that around picking the kids up from school, etc. Yeah. Point. Actually, thinking about it, yeah, doing a PhD when you are a mother is a fantastic option because it is so flexible. Well, the, the only thing I would say is that it, it made it extra lonely. Uh, doing a doctorate is a lonely path to tread as it is Absolutely. and not yeah. being on the spot in the lab day in, day out did make it harder. For, mm. for those days when I was sat at home all by myself. It just meant that when I yeah. did go on, on campus, I had to make the most of it and and really make a point of interacting with people and getting yeah. to know them. How long did it take you to finish in the end? Uh, three and a half years. Gosh, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I really commend you. But actually, yeah. it's smart that you did a PhD then because I think... Uh, academic study and and doctorates especially are a great thing to do when you are juggling young children. Well, I also think that they they are often, sadly, done by people who have just finished their first degree, have done well, they've got the smarts, but they don't quite know what they want to do with themselves and they do the PhD as, as a kind of default option for a smart person to do. Um, and they do whatever their supervisor wants them to do. I think when you do it as a mature student, you're much more, you can make it your own thing. You're much more aware of why it is that you want to do this particular yeah. research qualification yeah. and this particular research topic. Gosh, I'm slightly cringing when you said that because I think that might have been me. Um, <laughs> because when I did my undergrad, uh, I was so in love with computational fluid dynamics. Um, and I also didn't feel ready to go mm. into the big bad world mm. of work. And so I did uh, a sponsored doctorate, which meant that I was half in industry and half in academia. And it was a really 
cosy place to spend four years. Well, it's very good that you did it with industry anyway, because people who just stay in the cosy academia and they're not exposed Mm. to industry, um, I think have a much more difficult time stepping out into the world afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I think with engineering, it's really important to be close to industry and to be in touch with reality because it's very hands-on. Engineering is a subject that is constantly changing and improving and developing in terms of technology. And so if you're not um, on the pulse of that, then you can be left behind very quickly. Uh, these days, I really enjoy do, maintaining this relationship from the other side, from the industry side, mm. of having placement students and um, sponsored master students so that they develop a connection with industry mm. and, and supporting that side of things. Yeah. I mean, after three and a half years of doctorate, how did you then make the leap back into industry? Oh, very good question. So one of the things I didn't know when I started the PhD is the expected career path of a postdoc, which required you to hop between institutions every couple of years on these short term, relatively, from from my perspective, um, two, three year funded research projects. And ideally, could you do them on the other side of the world, please? Because that would be best for your academic career. And only after doing a few of those, maybe for as long as 10 years, do you get a permanent job of being a lecturer. And with two relatively young children at home, there was absolutely no way that I could do that. And there were, I think, three universities within commuting distance of where I lived. So I felt very, very stuck. And um, one way that I sort of found around it was to do a a teaching qualification, a lecturing qualification at the same time as as the uh, last year or so of my PhD, because I'd I'd done some tutoring and teaching sort of on the side and found it very rewarding but absolutely not prepared to do that without proper training again um, and and that enabled me to then go straight into a lecturing job with the caveat that of course I had still a very limited number of institutions and so they, these were not jobs that were specific to my subject area but they would just be generic computer science lecturing jobs and I wasn't able to continue with my research in an academic setting so I found being a lecturer in a UK university a really quite horrendous experience you really why you were badly paid given your level of experience and qualification mm. compared to industry. You are incredibly overloaded, the mm. teaching loads and the research loads and the expectations placed on lecturers are incredibly stressful. Because I was a, a mature student when I did my PhD, I would usually have lunch with um, academics and the younger lecturers rather than other PhD students 
And I've never met one that didn't moan about how unpleasant a lecturer's life was. Mm. Why do people choose to do that job? With all that knowledge, you know, and all the kind of promise of commercial success? It's a, it's a good question. It's a good question. I think some, some are idealists um, that really believe in teaching. I, I love teaching, but I found the higher education system as it stands at present in this country to be such a, such a mincer that it's mm. not really providing value to the students and it's not treating the staff well either. It is, mm. it is about the, the implementation of the system as it stands at the moment rather than the concept. And I think, you know, people go into it um, with glorified ideas of, right. of the pedestal that they put their own teachers and lecturers up on in their memory of their younger mm. years. And that's what they're trying to replicate and, and follow. And by the time they find out the reality they, they're quite constrained in their options and they are, in a sense, institutionalised. And so I was very lucky because I have spent so long in industry to be able to go back right. to industry very easily. To know and, what life on the other side was like. Yeah, and, and, I, and I now have a valuable role of being able to bridge the divide having lived on both sides, mm. I can both talk to academics in their language and explain the industry viewpoint to them and talk to my colleagues in industry and explain academia's strange ways to them. Mm. It is fascinating, actually, the personality types required for acad academia and industry because... Mm. Uh, in my experience, I got all of my academia out of the way in one go. And then when I went into the <laughs> world of work properly, um, without that academic attachment, uh, I was overwhelmed with the difference because I'd been in academia so long. And, um, you know, there is a real allure to what that kind of high level knowledge can bring you. Um, in terms of lifestyle. I mean, working in corporate and commercial environments is tempting because especially with all of that knowledge, particularly in something like AI. So for, for academics to want to stay in academia, they must be really wanting that particular lifestyle. Well, in, in AI specifically, there's been a massive exodus of academics to industry because the tech giants can come and offer them mm. as many hundreds of thousands a year as, as they ask for. Mm. Um, and it, it is really almost impossible to resist. Um, so the, there has been a, a hoovering out of UK universities in particular. And yes, the, the ones that have stayed Oh, other diehards. Right. And so you must have seen a lot of change in the field of artificial intelligence because, I mean, even at the 
the start of your career it didn't exist and now you're an expert in the field so what is that also, at the start of my career I was taught uh, at, at university during my first degree in the very early 90s I was taught about neural networks they did exist they were proposed for speech recognition typically at the time but compared to the to what we have these days they were absolutely tiny they were trained on tiny amounts of data and had very limited performance um, and the 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 three things that have enabled the massive leap that unfortunately happened just at the very end of my PhD and I wasn't able to make a, a sharp swerve and get into deep learning back then. Um, the, the three things that we have now are massive amounts of data mm. on which to train these systems. We have very um, abundant computing capacity in the form of GPUs. And then we do have rather more sophisticated mathematics of, of understanding machine learning and deep networks mm. than we What's had a GPU? Oh, uh, so a graphics processing unit was okay. originally invented for uh, rendering graphics on the computer for, for things like games. You know, gamers uh, are very yeah. keen on, on how hot and, and beefy their GPU is, but they were repurposed, if you like, for artificial intelligence applications because the mathematics involved in um, neural network training and in rendering graphics for games happen to be quite mm. similar. And have you also seen waves of new generation AI experts come into the field? There's, there's a massive shortage. It, it, the demand is incredible from industry. Oh, wow. And the... Yeah, um, and you know, the the salary premiums are enormous, Gosh. especially for for anyone with any actual experience yeah. of doing it, rather than just a couple of modules at university. Mm, right, because I maybe I'm I've been in the science communication business too long, but it feels like there are so many people in AI. <laughs> um, I think there are a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. Mm. Um, and, and some of them know what they're doing and, and some are tinkering. Um, there are a lot of people who are tinkering. And one of the problems is that you can actually achieve a, a, a pretty looking demo by tinkering yeah. and not really understanding how any of it really works. So what is the best route into AI now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so the, there are various backgrounds that actually lead yeah. into AI well. Um, I guess software engineering would be a major. I would actually put mathematics ahead of that. An applied, an applied oh, wow. mathematician, okay. I would take mm. ahead of a computer scientist for, for ah, doing uh, yeah. you know, serious machine learning research. 
the computer scientist will be good at implementing it and the mathematician will have a better concept of how the abstractions behind it work. There's a, a lovely cartoon I have um, pinned to the side of my desk where this guy in the lab coat is stirring a pile of equations and things and he's asked, oh, this this is your machine learning system? And he goes, yeah, just pour the data in this funnel and, and it goes into this pile of linear algebra and, and the answers come out. And if the answers come out wrong, you just stir the pile of it. But to stir a pile of linear algebra takes, takes a bit of mathematics background. Yeah, I mean, actually thinking about it, the people, I do meet a lot of people in the AI industry, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're experts in it. So you're right, a lot of people are trying to jump on that bandwagon without necessarily having an expert knowledge of the field. Well, there are different roles. So there, there is value in people who understand a particular application domain to say, oh, there is this new AI technology, can I apply it in my particular field? And that is fine and great. And it's only when you need to advance the underlying technology that you really need the expertise. Mm. So is there a gender imbalance in AI? Uh, there is, and there are various efforts to to try and overcome it, but it is essentially the same gender imbalance as you see in all of computer science, mm. which is one of the worst areas of engineering. At least that's what I found when teaching computer science, when working in software development, that it's worse than other parts of engineering, I'd say. Mm. It seems there seems to be absolutely no reason why girls shouldn't go into AI. In fact, it does seem to be a very it seems to be a very open field for women because I mean, you know, if let's just say my ignorant idea of AI was to be sort of um, expanded upon where robots are just becoming more and more intelligent and becoming more and more human-like, then you would want to have women in AI to provide that female perspective for robots. So, so there are women working in AI, and what you find is that they will cluster in the areas where there is a, a more caring side, if you like, to the application. So if it is a healthcare application of AI, you will find a much greater proportion of women mm. working there. Um, but I, I agree with you that, that I see no reason other than the cultural stereotypes of sort of nerdiness why girls shouldn't be involved in this field. Mm, yeah. So it sounds like you've had a very full, full life, um, not just career-wise, but uh, you've talked about your kids a couple of times. What ha has it been like trying to balance motherhood 
as well as um, a demanding career journey? I think for me, when the children were younger, they definitely took precedence over career. I continued working because that was, for me, necessary, not for financial reasons, but for sanity reasons. I I needed that intellectual stimulation. I think as as they've got older, it's been lovely to pass on some of this to them. So my older son has just started university, and although his earlier career intentions were towards uh, veterinary or, or medical sciences, he then did a, a late about turn and said, oh, no, actually, mm. I think I'll go into engineering. <laughs> and, and I threw my hands up in horror because we've had four generations of engineers in the family and I was hoping for a bit of variety. Gosh. Um, but there you go. He's, he's very happily doing electronic engineering at the moment. And um, and I, I really enjoy mm. being able to interact with him uh, on on those technology subjects. And then my younger daughter is all set on being oh, wow. an architect, which for her marries up her inherited mm. mathematical abilities with with her creative side. Um, so that's her firm intention. Um, but I think she she will have a very interesting path to tread in terms of, you know, as, as one lady architect friend described it, just imagine a building site with lots of guys in hard hats and um, steel-toed boots. And here comes a little wave mm-hmm. of a girl telling them what to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually quite surprised because your kids sound um, like they've had to make decisions that my twin sisters have been making. So I have one twin sister who is in veterinary science, but originally she studied maths and then did a very late (laughs) about turn after she qualified with her maths degree um, back into veterinary, which is something she always dreamed of doing ever since she was a kid. And uh, actually got distracted by everybody's expectations of her because mm. she's naturally gifted in mathematics. Mm. Um, and now she's practicing as a vet and she's really happy. And then my other sister is an architect. And um, it's it's so interesting that STEM subjects are, you know, so varied, mm. you know, from taking care of animals to applying mathematics and design to buildings. It's all STEM. Yeah. And so how is how is your sister finding it being a, a young female architect? It's interesting because, um, you know, I think the numbers are low in architecture, not as bad as engineering, but they are low. And she believes it's because of how long it takes to actually become successful in architecture. Um, and the fact that you it's such a long journey to reaching your career pinnacle, if at all, um, means that it often clashes with a woman's biological clock. And so to become 
really senior in architecture, uh, you either have to make the choice of not having kids or having kids, but sort of compromising on your career. But I think that's every STEM subject or every career. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy so far with my choice of having children early. Yeah. So I was 24 oh, gosh. Wow. 25 when I had my first yeah. child. And, and getting that over and done with and out of the mm. way and then really having a serious career later on. And, and in a way, I, I feel more ready and more mature to really be confident in my career, in my position now. Yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to meet a woman like you. They're young. They can either do the maternal bit as soon as possible and, as you say, get it out of the way, or you can deliberate over it and wonder whether you're you know, basically giving up your life by having kids early and forget about any career later on. Um, and so then you you just, you know, you carry on with the career thinking that one day it will all just work out magically. Um, and I feel like I'm in that category where, you know, basically I have uh, sort of put all of that motherhood stuff to one side purely because navigating a career in engineering was required me to be of a male mindset in order to get anywhere mm-hmm. and you know, as a result like you know I may have um, sort of scuppered my chances of ever becoming a mum and I think women really face that dilemma if they want careers it's it is a very difficult choice um I never saw children as precluding a career. I just saw it as a, a pause and a dragging out of the career. It was never for me a, a choice of giving up work altogether so that I could have children. And and so I was I was quite happy to to do both. I, I mm. couldn't quite face full-time work because that felt like abandoning the children too much. Yeah. But, but you uh, always have your mind set on going back one day, which I think is crucial. Well, but I never left. That was really the point because I carried on working part-time throughout since since they were born. They, mm. they, I went back after maternity leave, after six months and they went to nursery for half a day every day I was lucky that I didn't have a very long commute and and so did you not go through any of that thinking process whereby you were sort of comparing yourself to colleagues and saying oh no I'm being left behind and I can't ever possibly get back into this because you know baby brain biologically I've changed like you know all those things that really drag women down I think you know on one episode I spoke to a woman who had had a baby 10 months ago um, and before that she was managing 25 people in a multi-million pound project Um, she had so much responsibility and then 
as soon as she had the baby, her colleagues just treated her like she had a handicap. Um, and it really emotionally got to her. Hmm. I've, I've not experienced that because I had, it so, I had the children so early. I hadn't yet reached the, the point of seniority where I had to take a sudden hit. Right. So, so I, I felt that I wasn't progressing in my career. I was sort of treading water, if you like. But, but I didn't feel at any point that I, I took a sudden setback. Mm. I'm starting to think, actually, that maybe we should have a culture of expecting women who want to have children to just have them as soon as possible. I mean, biologically, that is how we're built. You know, once we start menstruating, like, it's our body's way of saying, I'm ready to bear children. Um, And so really, our attitudes should be changed to, um, you know, procreating as soon as we can, and then thinking about building your life later. And I, well, but also you, you build your life better because your experience of parenting gives you some additional mm. skills that are not on the school yeah, syllabus absolutely. and they're not on the university curriculum. And I think having raised children has given me so many of the soft skills that I now use as a, a leader in industry that I, I probably would not have yeah. developed if I'd, not, if I'd not parented a couple of kids. Yeah, like patience, tolerance, acceptance of the way people are. I think those are skills that are so essential for being in a working environment. Yeah, some of it comes from teaching similar skills. Mm, yeah true yeah anything where you are giving yourself selflessly I think teaches you so much as a human being it teaches you so gives you so many skills for life and um but also you're having to handle people you're having to handle small um wayward people <laughs> that have their their own ideas and are not that easily influenced so it it does give you a lot of valuable people skills mm, yeah absolutely gosh um i don't feel i don't get any sense from you that you would have done your life any other way uh, but looking back over your career, are there decisions that you made that maybe you would do differently? Um, I think it's it's very personal. I could have pushed for a promotion and greater recognition earlier. I could have, but for for reasons of my own. Um, family history and self-perception and sort of lack of confidence mm. in in myself, not just because of my gender. I didn't. Mm. Um, but I, I'm, I'm really not into regrets of any kind. I don't think they really help. Learn lessons by all means. Mm. 
So what were the lessons you learned in self-confidence? Lessons in self-confidence. So at the moment, people consider me to be a very confident person and a person that inspires confidence in others. So allows others and helps others to be more confident. And How did you develop that? How did you get to that point? Uh, apart from a lot of therapy, um, how, did, how did I develop that? Um, I think it is, it's also um, recognising in a really fundamental way that other people are just people like yourself. And so everyone has insecurities and everyone has fears and the most useful thing you can do for them and for yourself and for your team and organization and family and whoever it is, is is to support them. And being confident, displaying confidence is the best contribution that I can make to the success of the group as a whole. That is one of my functions as as a leader be it of a family of a team is to um, listen to people's worries anxieties concerns to to process them evaluate them and and then to to give them a confidence and a support and and a I hope that we can work through this and it'll all work out for the best because actually worry and, and anxiety are very damaging and they're very infectious in groups. So um, anxiety is known as, as the most infectious affect and that's that's true in teaching, so when you enter a lecture hall, your your job is to inspire confidence in the students that they can do this. It's not to relate a series of facts, because they can read that in a textbook. The reason they need a person standing there in front of them is is to relay that confidence, that that belief that not only am I clever and I know it all, but mm. actually they can learn it because even though they're starting from a, a, a position of, of fear of not having the skills and not having the knowledge and the uncertainty of what is coming, and they need a good teacher to hold their hand through that process of walking forward over the threshold into this new subject that they haven't 
yet learned. The idea that it's so important to have someone in your life that believes in you and supports you and will listen um, seems to be so crucial, but not everybody has access to people like that in their lives. I mean, some teachers can be terrifying and intimidating and um, you know, not have that softness um, to encourage people to learn. Um, so where should people turn if they don't readily have that? That's, that's an interesting question. And it actually it chimes with the bit of um, research that I did as, as part of my lecturing qualification that looked into why there are so few girls doing STEM and technology subjects at university. And by interviewing a number of them who, who had made it, I found that every single one would re report a, a believer person somewhere in their family or in their support group who absolutely um, knew that girls can do technology and they transmitted that belief and that's what enabled them to, to stick it out despite the prejudices and mm -hmm. the stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, where you turn to for support where when you don't already have somebody like that around is is a difficult question it's not just for women it's it's for anyone um i mean i i found for myself the greatest source of encouragement ultimately yeah. to be the church um, um one of the things that is gradually built up week after week as you come to church and you talk to people and you you listen is this encouragement and belief in yourself mm. and the building up of confidence um, i have I've, I've also had other figures in my life in the past who have been immensely supportive and encouraging individually but if if you're not lucky enough to have come across them um, then then that's one place where you can turn yeah i mean those that's such great advice because i think um particularly amongst girls i mean i may be absolutely generalizing absolutely generalizing inappropriately <laughs> um but i think women girls they do tend to pedestalize maybe boys do it too but I certainly have experience of pedestalizing certain people um and as a result um you know you can either feel extremely supported or not and um I think it's really important who you choose as the person you put on your pedestal which is why role models are so important in STEM, you know, really choosing someone that not only has lived a life that you would like to achieve one day or emulate, um, but also someone as a role model who really believes in you. And, you know, if you are not 
I think that's different from a role model. Forgive me, um, because I, I'm I'm a real stickler for definitions for words. So for me, a, a role model is somebody that you emulate, whereas a, a person who you like stands alongside you and provides the support and encouragement is is not. It's not, they're not modelling how to perform yeah. a particular role that you want to emulate. They're, they're just being there as a support for you. Yeah, and I guess maybe that's the difference between a mentor and a role model. Um, you know, whatever yes. the labels um, yeah. may be, yes. I think it's really important to have someone that believes mm. in you. Um, just someone that will hear you out. Because uh, I think often, you know perhaps even going into STEM subjects where there's a lot of people that are not like you because they're male or otherwise, um, you can often feel like you're not heard and therefore not significant. And so just having someone that will listen makes a massive difference. Mm. And then someone that is, you know, has been a trailblazer and is doing the things that you would like to do one day is always really encouraging. But, um, I think it's really important at this point to like say mm. that it's okay if you don't find them, but you should always know that they do exist somewhere and to keep your radar open for that. Because for me, I went through a long time in my career where there just mm. were no role models or mentors that I could turn to, but it didn't mean that they didn't exist. Mm. So I, I, I was lucky enough to come across a couple of, um, actual female role models in my field. So I had a, a female professor at university who was teaching um, medical imaging, as it happens, surprise, surprise. Um, and um, I've, I've kind of kept track of her over the years. Um, and then... I never actually met um, Maria Petru, who was one of the founders of the research group where I did my doctorate. But again, just knowing about her career and knowing people who have worked with her and in how much esteem and regard they held her was in itself an inspiration. But there are many, many more people who have been mentors and supporters to me in the past. And the vast majority of those were men because that's that's all there was. That was yeah, yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I think it's just really important to choose um, those people wisely because uh, sometimes our 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 selection criteria can be a little bit skewed. And I say that from my own experiences that my selection criteria wasn't the best for me. I um, now, looking back, realise that it was really important for someone to just believe in me and not kind of focus on my grades, my achievements, my attainments. But no matter whether I was highly achieving or not, just believed in my capability to learn. And so we're actually, we've gone full circle, um, sort of right at the beginning of this podcast, talking about the definition of learning and intelligence. Mm -hmm. 
And it's really someone that just believes in your intelligence and your willingness to learn, particularly in STEM subjects, which, you know, um, where we don't really see too many role models. Um, and yeah, pick someone that is in your inner circle um, that knows that you've got what it takes to succeed. Yeah, uh, I think the, the younger generation coming through have got a, a, a mountain to climb in terms of fighting their own anxieties over grades and achievements and they have such a, a weight of expectations mm. placed on them that it is even more important to find somebody who as you say believes in your ability rather than demands achievements and and accolades from you mm. Well, on that note, I'm sure you are a role model and mentor to so many people out there, even just on this podcast. Thank and you. I really thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your personal details um, with us on Silence today. It's been great fun. Thank you very much. That's it from my STEM guest this week. What a refreshing perspective she provided today. Um, I really feel like uh, I've kind of stopped in my thinking tracks and I want to um, recalibrate um, some of my perspectives on life. It's been so enlightening listening to her today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review and catch you next week on Silence.